This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or peace between us and others, either close to home or across the globe, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Danielle Price. Today we're going to dive into a deeper understanding of some terms that we're all now much more familiar with, terms like disinformation, misinformation, and even fake news and then look at ways to block the negative impact of them, sometimes deadly impact in some parts of the world. With the ubiquity of social media, any information has the potential to spread quickly, whether it's true or not. False information on online platforms like Facebook and Twitter, whether planted intentionally or passed along unintentionally, has been associated with affecting elections, public health debates, and in some cases, misinformation and disinformation has been directly linked to genocidal wars in countries like Myanmar and Ethiopia and elsewhere. None of this is exactly new, as Daniel Price will help us learn. Daniel's on the line with me now from Oslo, Norway. Danielle, why did you want to explore misinformation's role in fomenting conflict and, and, and what could be done to turn the tide back toward the truth? Yeah, I think the reason I was interested in this topic is because misinformation and social media, they're so ubiquitous in our lives today that they can almost feel frivolous and harmless. And the truth is that uh, they're really not. As you were saying, misinformation has been the basis of some of the most violent conflicts. And I really wanted to understand why and how. Uh, When I first learned the role that Facebook played in the Myanmar genocide against the Rohingya population, I was really shocked and I didn't really understand the leap from Facebook to war. So I really wanted to, to take some time to speak to some people about that to try to understand it better. Right. And you chose to focus on the impact misinformation has had, not in the U.S., where there seems to have been plenty of examples in recent years, but in parts of the world most Americans have heard very little about. Where else and why? Yeah, I focused especially on a region in northern Ethiopia called Tigray. Um, And as you said, it's a region that not many Americans know much about, but it's been under a brutal conflict for almost two years going now. Uh, I visited Tigray in 2019 for tourism, actually, before the war started, and it was an extremely beautiful place. It's full of rock-hewn churches that are some of the oldest in the world. And now it's an area that is um, under a really bloody conflict and is almost entirely cut off from communication with the rest of the world. So we really don't hear much about what's happening there. Um, But researchers estimate now that half a million people may have died from the conflict in Tigray. And it's um, just a conflict that many Americans don't know much about at all. I also really think that the platforms like Facebook and Twitter are such a big part of our daily lives in the U.S., and we don't really think that much about the impact they have in other places and in these conflicts. And so that's something I think about a little bit now, you know, if I'm scrolling Facebook, for example. So what would you especially suggest that our listeners tune into while listening to your guests today? I think these problems can feel really big and far away, and they are very big. Um, And the platforms themselves really need to be held accountable. And that can feel like something that individuals don't have much say over. But our guests talk about very simple actions that every individual can take. Um, And I think that's something to really key into in in the show. Danielle, who are we going to hear from later in the program? We'll hear from Berhan Taye, an independent peace researcher who investigates the relationship between technology, society, and social justice. Tai has focused on the digital landscape in Africa and communication access in Ethiopia, where misinformation has fueled violent conflict. 
We'll also hear from Jerusalem Girmai, the Chief Communications Officer for Omna Tigray, a resource center that advocates for human rights and economic development in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Tigray has been the center of a genocidal war since 2020, and misinformation has played a role in inciting violence. Girmai is also a member of the Tigrayan diaspora in the U.S. And tell us who we're going to listen to first today. Uh, first, we'll be hearing from Dr. Michael Bang-Peterson, and he is a professor of political science at Denmark's Aarhus University, and he researches evolutionary psychology and misinformation. I think one of the key things to remember is that uh, people have always been trying to influence each other with information uh, to change the way that other people think about certain issues uh, in in a way that is aligned with one's own interests. That sometimes involves not telling the complete truth, uh, sort of selectively uh, choosing, uh, choosing which facts uh, to convey or, or even to outright lie. This has been very well documented in the context of, of some of the most horrific uh, events in, in human history, such as ethnic massacres, you will almost never have a horrific event like an ethnic massacre without a preceding period of, of intense rumor circulation. And most of that stuff that is being circulated is, is completely untrue, but serves the purpose of mobilizing the group against uh, the presumed enemy. So, so this idea about using information to mobilize your group against some target, that's just the way we humans act in conflicts. And of course, that is then something that is now in the age of social media being even more widespread and, and presumably also something that you, that you can do more effectively. So does it mean that um, have we evolved to be more likely to believe false information? Uh, I think that in many situations, it's a very, very bad evolutionary idea uh, to to not have an accurate representation of, of how the world works. Uh, so let's say that you want to jump over a cliff, then you need to know exactly how tall that cliff is and, and, and so on. Uh, in the same way that if you are uh, hunting for an animal, then, then you need to know exactly what's the location of the animal and so on. So, so human perception systems are highly accurate and are to a large extent built to, to perceive the world accurately. But not, not all problems are uh, like uh, jumping over a cliff or, or hunting an animal. Uh, a lot of the problems that we're facing are social problems. And when it comes to social problems, it's not always clear that it is important uh, for you to have uh, accurate uh, representations of the world. What is really helpful for you uh, is often if the if the other person or the other persons who are involved think of you as better than you uh, are, as stronger than you are, and your job in social in like strategic social interaction is is to provide information that will create these slight misrepresentations uh, in the social situation. And what research suggests is that often you might actually be better at persuading others if, if you believe in the misinformation yourself. So I know that uh, this is mentioned in your book chapter, um, but it's, it's commonly understood that, that people believe in false information uh, just because of ignorance or not being well informed. Does it mean that that's not a very good explanation? 
yes, that is certainly not a very good uh, explanation. So it's 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 true that if we if we look at uh, beliefs in misinformation, then there is an effect of some forms of uh, of, of ignorance, like people who are more reflected. Uh, are less likely to believe in in misinformation, uh, but if we if we turn our focus to what you do with misinformation, so the extent to which you share misinformation, then uh, ignorance plays a very very little role. In fact, in the research that we have been doing on uh, on the circulation of fake news on on Twitter, we can see that the users, the Twitter users who share more fake news, they are in fact more knowledgeable. They know more about politics than than the average uh, Twitter user. What is really the identifying feature of these people is an intense hatred towards the other political party. So if it's Democrats, uh, then it's negative feelings towards Republicans. And if we're looking at Republicans, then it's negative feelings towards Democrats. And that is really what determines the sharing. So the people who are doing the sharing of fake news, it's not because that they're ignorant. It is because they are selectively and strategically trying to find information that they can use to denigrate uh, their opponents. Um, If we can step back uh again, to um, the idea of our ancestors and uh, the evolution of this. Um, I thought it was really interesting reading in the chapter about how um, in hunter-gatherer societies, the importance of groups and shared group beliefs. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that as it relates to misinformation. Yes, uh, we, we humans, we are what you can call an ultra-social uh, animal. We are We are not very big. We don't have any natural weapons like fangs or claws. Uh, what what we have is our uh, ability to cooperate uh, with with others. Um, and, and one of the most cooperative endeavors uh, that, that humans can engage in is in fact uh, conflict. So when we are in a conflict with, uh, with other people, uh, then we're trying to mobilize uh, other people to help us uh, in this conflict. So conflicts are these ultra- cooperative endeavors where what really often will determine the outcome uh, of a conflict between humans is which one of the adversaries are able to mobilize most people uh, on on their behalf, attract most people to, to their side. Believing in misinformation and sharing misinformation can also be a signal to other participants uh, in the group that you are part of the group. Everyone can believe the truth, but only a devoted group member will believe something that's obviously false. We humans signal our membership uh, in groups in all sorts of ways. The, the clothes we wear, uh, the tattoos we have, the face paint uh, that we take on if we think about ancestral uh, humans. But we also have the ability to signal our group membership by the beliefs that we have. So this is pretty clear in in modern politics that you signal your membership or your identity as, for example, a Democrat or as a Republican by the opinions that you air. And and one function of those opinions is exactly that it helps other people to see that, oh, you're in this group and not in that group. And if you need to find uh, a really good opinion to signal a group membership, then you need to find an opinion or a belief that that not so many other people have. So that is why there is what you can call a pressure to come up with with more extreme beliefs, to 
come up with beliefs that that violates uh, other people's intuitions because those are the beliefs that only your group will hold and holding those beliefs will be a signal that you have access to to a specialized kind of knowledge that only other group members will have i was thinking of, of two recent conflicts that have been highlighted for the role that misinformation and hate speech especially online has played in very violent conflict so i was thinking of the genocide of the rohingya ethnic minority in mm. myanmar and yep. the ongoing war in the tigray region of ethiopia and I was wondering if you'd be able to speak about those conflicts at all, and if we see the same patterns there. So I'm I'm not an expert on on these on these specific uh, conflicts, uh, other than I I followed them in the in in the news as as everyone uh, else. But I I have been been looking into the anthropology of of other kinds of of ethnic uh, cleavages, uh, and and one of the really important books uh, that that have shaped my thinking a lot is is one called The Deadly Ethnic Riot, by a, a law scholar named Horowitz. What struck me when I read that book, which really emphasizes the role of misinformation in ethnic riots, was how similar the content of those kinds of misinformation are to, to what we would think of as fake news in, in, the, in the context of, of democratic uh, politics. So it is really about portraying as evil uh, and as ready to do something, which means that we need to act. Mm. So speaking about um, the the time to act and that something is imminent, there's been a lot of um, uh, discussion lately about this speech, especially on Facebook, and about the responsibility of platforms to to do something about this speech. I'm curious how these evolutionary behaviors are different in a time when we have these platforms where the speech can be so widespread. This is an an extremely important. Uh, important question. And I think the first thing to say is that we still don't have a very deep understanding of exactly how things play out on social media platforms. So so I think that the first thing to say about also the responsibilities of the tech giants is that we need way more transparency and external oversight over the content of algorithms and, and data access such that we can, in fact, identify what is the precise nature of the problems uh, we are facing. Uh, but I think uh, that there is one problem that is pretty clear, uh, and that is that what characterizes social media is, is what we call connectivity. That is that they are big open networks where a lot of people are connected to each other. And, and that means that it's places where information can spread with extreme speed. Uh, and that can be uh, true information or it can be misinformation. It can be uh, sort of helpful democratic comments or it can be hate speech. That is where we need to focus on, well, how can we, how can we break the connectivity uh, for, the, for the problematic uh, content? And, and I think one of the interesting discussions that we need to engage in is to what extent should we have the tech giants regulate that concept themselves more? And to what extent should we require that they enable uh, the users themselves to regulate content more? So I think a lot of people listening might be a bit skeptical that the, the platforms themselves and these tech giants are very motivated to, to take quick action. Hmm. In the meantime, 
what can regular people do to combat this type of misinformation in our in our daily lives? There is a lot of good uh, evidence that that you can actually learn to identify misinformation uh, relatively uh, easy. Uh, something that we have been working on in my research team is to look look at at videos from fact checkers. Like, to what extent uh, can like a crash course in three minutes uh, help you identify uh, misinformation? And that actually seems to be the case. We have looked at that in the context of political misinformation in the in in U.S. democratic politics, and we have been looking at it. Uh, in in the context of uh, misinformation about uh, coronavirus and and vaccines in the context of uh, of Denmark, and I think that's one part of it. Sort of knowing what should you be looking for uh, when you are navigating uh, the the social media in the information environment. But I also think that what you can do as as an, an individual user is also to think about what your what is your own motivations for sharing uh, a particular piece of uh, of information on social media. Is, are you actually doing this to further democratic debate, further our understanding of the problems that we're facing as societies, or, or is it more a knee-jerk reaction where you say, well, this fits the view that I've already uh, had, and, and now I'll just uh, share it to sort of uh, signal the opinion that I have. So I think we also need to look inside ourselves and and think about how how do we deal with with information? Because you could say that information that you are that sort of fits your worldview will will make all the reward centers in your brain light up in the same way as they will light up when you look at a or when you eat a candy bar. And, and just as we need to manage uh, our our own relationship to calories, we also need to manage our own relationship to uh, to information and only spend our intention, attention and time on the type of information that really uh, matters. And and my final uh, advice again for the for the individual user, and it's important for me to say that when I talk about the what what you as an individual can do, that doesn't mean. That that it it ought to be your own responsibility to all do all those things, but it's just the nature of the situation right now is that to a large extent it is up to you until we get tech giants uh, to do more. Um, but but one of the things you could do is is also to um, don't take the bait. If you see people are making hateful comments, then mute them, block them. Essentially, uh, try to care as little as as possible, uh, and also do not think that the hateful comments you receive is a reflection of what most people think. The people who are discussing, for example, politics online, are the most angry, frustrated people who have personality dispositions that that make them not wanting to engage in discussions uh, just to. Uh, to to further democratic dialogue and and understand your point, but they really want to assert dominance. So don't engage with the troll, I think is also pretty important. And don't be afraid of using the tools that you have available, such as reporting, blocking, and muting. You can hear more from Dr. Peterson either in our hour-long version of the program or Daniel Price's entire interview with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Coming up, we'll hear how platforms like Facebook can prevent violence by investing in content moderation in languages beyond English. Berhan Taye is up next right after a short break. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Danielle Price. You can find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. The majority of Facebook users live in non-English speaking countries around the globe, but the vast majority of content moderation is for English postings, which leaves a lot of room for violent content to go unchecked elsewhere. Our next guest says it's our responsibility to demand our elected officials understand how social media works and the accountability that needs to be in place for the media companies. Danielle Price talked with Berhan Taye, who, along with a colleague, wrote an open letter to Facebook demanding the platform take steps to address violence inciting speech in Ethiopia. In the letter, we were asking very, very basic things. One of the things were, you know, take down content that's hateful take down content that's inciting violence, take down content that's also, you know, extremely dangerous speech. But then you are also, you know, um, asking them to publish their human rights impact assessment that they did previously. I think this was in February 2020. Uh, We were also asking them to set up an escalation mechanism because it's not the first time this has happened in Ethiopia, right? Like, and it continues to happen. Mm. But every time it happens, they're surprised, you know, and they're running around asking for, you know, what's happening, sort of of trying to figure out what the context is. To put in more human um, content moderators within the staff that understand the context, that understand and have training in human rights and, you know, international norms and standards on how to moderate content. We were also asking them very basic things again, you know localized content um so what we mean with localization is that when you're reporting content on the platform you only are able at that point at least you are only able to report it in english and in mm. amharic so we were like you have to introduce tigrinya you know oromifa afanoromo and then somali and other languages as well so really basic very very basic thing uh, you know a multi-billion dollar company can easily um implement Yeah, on the language point, I know um, the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Hogan, she had made a statement that 87% of the spending on combating misinformation at Facebook was spent on English content, and that 9% of the users are English speakers. So it seems like there's just a huge, huge mismatch there. Oh, yeah. And there's a huge mismatch everywhere in terms of how uh, the platform invests in human rights, right? We know that they don't have enough content moderators. We know that the content moderators, majority of them are dedicated for English, even though, you know, majority of us, you know, Facebook's over like 80% of Facebook users are not based in Western Europe or are not based in the US and and Mm. Canada, right? Like so North America. So, so they really, uh, you would assume that, you know, their investment would be proportional to the reality that, you know, the, the, the users are facing on the platform, but that's not, that's not the case. Um, so it seems like, you know, if you're not an English speaker, you're an afterthought for Facebook uh, when it comes to, but, you know, of course, they'll still, uh, they'll still um, get revenue from ad advertisement and, you know, they, they'll still will continue to do, uh, you know, the side of the work that, that they need to do to, to, to make sure that they get revenue from all of us that are not, uh, you know, native English speakers or are mm-hmm. not using the platform in, in English. But when it comes to human rights investment or, you know, human rights impact assessment, uh, we're, we're an afterthought. It's not about it's not about the impact that the platform has on us or it's not about how how we're affected or the extent of you know, the harm that we've experienced because of these platforms. 
So let's take um, the example of, of just the language uh, in terms of the content moderation, something that seems like it's very straightforward. Has anything changed even in that sphere? Have they you know, increased the languages that they're working in, hired more people that speak uh, different languages? Has there been any progress? So they say that. They say they've hired more um, content moderators that speak a different language and that you know they've increased their their the number of um, employees that they have but again you know from our end what we're seeing is that not much has changed right like so you report content your ability to get a response from them is ridiculous like you like most of the time you don't get a reply if you do get a reply it's uh, the default is all oh, this content does not violate our policy, even though that content is calling for people to be killed or to, for ethnic groups to be exterminated. You can just, you know, use the imagination of the worst things that folks would say about one another. Um, so what we've, so they say that they've invested in that and they've hired more people that can do content moderation. But from our end, from the user's point of view, we haven't seen that investment. Um, but then, you know, the issue is that also whenever you approach F- Facebook and ask. Um, how many content moderators do you have per language? They'll tell you they have 40, more than 40,000, right? Um, but we know that, that more, def- more than, more than 40,000 individuals are not working on Ethiopia or are not working on Nigeria or, you know, on Myanmar or other, you know, countries that we know are also, you know, dealing with this with this issue that, that we're all facing together. Um, so, yes, they say that they've invested more, they've hired more, they're moderating content in many different languages, but they don't. They can't tell us how many users are, how many content moderators they have per language, and that's the number that really can matter, right? Like, so we can say yeah. if if they had told us they had fifty in July twenty twenty two, and now they have three hundred, you can say, oh, okay, so there's been a significant increase. It might not be solving all of the problem that that we're seeing here, but it's still, you know, it's still an effort. But without any significant number of content moderators, it's really hard to say. And from our end, not much has changed. Mm, okay. Um, so this show airs in the U.S. Um, and a lot of people listening might not be very familiar with the situation in Ethiopia. Could you give um, kind of a, an explanation of, of how misinformation and hate speech has played a role in violence in, e- in Ethiopia? And I was also wondering if you could talk um, about the conflict in Tigray. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, for the past... Um, I don't want to go into a history lesson, but like for the past, you know, three, four years, um, uh, you know, like so previously, you know, for the past 27 years, you know, um, Ethiopia was highly censored. I'm not saying, you know, folks are not censored now, but, you know, we used to experience, you know, there were many websites that were blocked. Um, journalists were arrested left, right and center. And social media was the only space that uh, you could really get alternative um, you know, narratives around what, you know, human rights issues, political, economical um, issues in the country, right? Like, so, it, and in terms of just sort of getting us to the change that that sort of came out, came about in 2017, um, social media was really, really important for the country, right? So comes 2017, you know, uh, the, the, the regime that was, that had ruled the country for about 27 years decides to, um, well, not really decided, was forced to leave, um, you know, a new prime minister comes in, um, you know, a lot of the websites that are blocked are unblocked, you know. So there were a lot of change in terms of how the narrative online was happening. But then right at, that, at the same time, you could see a lot of misinformation and disinformation 
sort of happening in the country. There were a lot of insecurity even way before the Tigray conflict started. Um, so YouTube channels, you know, Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts were really, um, really fueling the disparity, the like sort of the animosity between different communities in the country. What we've seen is that, you know, what's happening on the ground in, in terms of the Tigray conflict has really transpired online as well and not the most positive ways right like so um there's been a complete uh, internet blackout and communication blackout in tigray and you know some of the other parts of the the, the country that have been either affected by uh, you know the um the spillover of that war to other regions of the country but or also in the oromian Wellega and other places where there's actually um uh, you know violent conflict happening between the state forces and and uh, you know, armed groups that you know there's a lot of misinformation disinformation um, you know, people have not talked to their their family for about a year and something mm. uh, because there's a complete blackout. But also the misinformation around the conflict, the narratives around you know what is actually happening on the ground is also highly contested um, because there there are narratives that are being formed every day on on a YouTube channel. There's narratives being you know around who ha- who have been the victims of this war, also mm. hijacking the stories of people so that it. It serves the purpose of certain political elites and groups, both from uh, the armed groups, but also from from government side. So um, it really has made you know the situation extremely worse. It's like we're we were in a really bad state, but just the idea that you know um, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and others have not been accountable to you know to their to their own terms and standards that they've set and community standards has made this war extremely terrible for. Um, for the majority who have no voice, who have no say about what happens to their daily lives. So that's sort of how I would summarize what's happening, but it's not a, it's not an efficient summary, but it's, it is a, it is one. No, that's, that's helpful. Americans listening also might think, you know, okay, Ethiopia, Myanmar, these countries are very different from the U.S., and this isn't really an issue that we have to worry about here. So, you know, yes, there's misinformation, and especially in recent years, politics have been very polarizing on these sites, but we don't have these violent conflicts inside our country. Do you think that's an accurate reading, or is that missing something? Um, yeah, I mean, okay, yes, you don't have, um, you know, Americans might not necessarily have a violent conflict between two armed groups, and, you know, uh, thousands might not be dying every day. But... In many ways, you know, our realities might, might be different, but our lived experiences are, are very similar, right? Like, so if you look at um, what happened, uh, you know, on January 6th in uh, the U.S. Capitol is, uh, is, a, is a massive issue that we, you know, that, that needs to be discussed. Uh, and, you know, social media platforms are at the core of this, right? Like whether, yeah. you know, people are in support of what happened on that day or not, it is, it really shows you there's a, there's a massive divide so social media platforms play a role when, whenever there is, um, you know, a contested issue being being discussed in any country, right? Like, and not in a, in a positive way where they're trying to bring people out of their silos uh, to have a, you know, a dialogue, a conversation in a, in, a, in a democratic manner. That's not really the case. If you look at gun control, all of the issues that are really contested, you know, border control, um, uh, you know, <laughs> Black Lives Matter movement. So in many ways, you know, you might not, like, Americans might not necessarily be facing you know, the same issues as we are, but, you know, our lived reality is that this multi-billion dollar corporations don't really care about, um, you know, the most vulnerable that are going to be affected by this. At the end of the day, they care about their bottom line. And as long as they're making money, we're, we're just, you know, we're just a pawn in the game. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, regulation is going to be really critical and regulation, um, 
although the US might not be the best regulator when it comes to you know tech companies, um, you know something has to give and you know ha- has to start somewhere. So we also look up, look towards uh, you know towards the West uh, to be able to sort of regulate the companies that are registered within within their jurisdictions. Right. Okay. So I mean, while we you know kind of push for and hope for tech companies to make these changes and to be more accountable. What can regular people do to address this issue and to try and, you know, reduce violence online? I mean, should people boycott these platforms? Um, so the, the issue of boycott, like for me, it's, you know, is a conversation about privilege, right? Like, so in a country like where in Myanmar or in Ethiopia and other places where you don't have really independent media or you're not able to access information that readily, like as others, Facebook might be the only platform you have to access that information. If you're an informal sector worker that uses Facebook to sell their products online, you can't really boycott these platforms right yeah. like so boycott boycotting the platform is for the privilege and if you're privileged enough to do that please go for it like don't you know don't make these guys make any money out of your you know clicks and your data and your face and all of those things right mm. but for those of us that are not that privileged and cannot boycott the platform uh, i think you know we need to have a lot of conversation about digital literacy um sort of having that that very basic conversation of how do you how do you gauge um a content online right like so that's really basic conversation with with your like you know older folks with your parents with your grandparents saying you know everything you see on the on on these platforms might not necessarily be true um right like so i think it starts from that but also being responsible for um you know it's not just about the platform i think it's also individuals that are perpetrating this you know this content that's inciting violence content that's um you know that's problematic we should also be going you know uh, with litigation, I think against those individuals, so that they're also held, you know, accountable to the content that they put, um, you know, and content that is actually harming individuals. Um, but I think digital literacy is going to be really critical, and we really have to start that at, at a very young age, where we introduce this in, you know, primary and high school, where uh, folks can have a, a better understanding of the digital ecosystem, how misinformation, disinformation, fake news, and others are produced, you know, packaged and sold online, right? And who benefits? There's also like, you know, um, the monetization of disinformation is also a really critical thing here, right? So many of the platforms, including Google and Facebook, um, actually get money uh, of content that goes viral, but that content is also not necessarily the best content that should be going viral. It's really is, you know, it's a fine balance, but I think everybody here, including platforms and individuals have a stake in this and have a say in this. Governments have a say in this. Regulators have a say in this. Um, you know, classrooms have a say in this, right? Like, so we need we need to be teaching better. We need to be sort of sharing information better, consuming information better, uh, regulating even better than than what we are doing right now. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of issues that, that needs to be sort of handled um, from different angles. Is there anything that people who maybe are in a position of more privilege, um, you know, somebody sitting in the U.S. who feels like I, I have the space, I have the bandwidth to to be more involved in this, is there anything that they can do to help fight violent speech in other countries? Yeah, I guess in some ways, right? Like, so, you know, uh, we say that the usual things like, you know, calling your congressman, like, you know, your, your elected officials, to sort of now, you know, have a conversation about this, making sure that, you know, the FCC and others are um, regulating, you know, better, um, you know, uh, uh, like if you're somebody sitting out of the US, I think you can, you definitely might have the privilege to boycott these platforms, right? 
um, but also to raise this with, with your elected officials because they're the ones that have to go and regulate. How do we penalize these companies so that they're not, uh, you know, exporting, um, you know, um, violent uh, content, you know, um, globally, right? Like, so if this was about violent extremism, uh, all of the platforms, you know, will come forward, say they've done this and that, but when it comes to ethnic violence or, you know, the most vulnerable around the world, um not many people care, um, right? Like, so making sure also like the folks that are sitting there, you know, making these rules and regulations are also well-informed. We've seen, uh, the, the, you know, some of the testimonies that have been given uh, and you can see some of the some of the lawmakers don't really understand the questions they're asking or don't really mm. understand how these platforms work, right? Like, so that also starts with that, right? Like, so making sure that you elect someone that, um, you know, has an understanding of how the 21st century is working, basically, is also really important, um, right? Like, so it's, it's all of those things, I think, you know, um, mixed mixed together. But yeah, if you can boycott the platform, please go for it, do that. But, um, you know, calling your um, elected officials, you know, explaining that this is an important issue for the world is, is critical. You can find a link to Berhan Taye's open letter to Facebook at peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can also hear Danielle Price's full extended interview with Berhan Taye, peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, we'll hear about how misinformation online is inflaming a war in Ethiopia and why it's so important to use tools like reporting and blocking after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Danielle Price. And today she's exploring how misinformation online can have violent consequences in real life. Starting in November of 2020, a brutal war erupted between the federal government of Ethiopia and a group known as the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, that rules the northern region of Tigray. The TPLF dominated Ethiopian politics for the three decades before now Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed took office in 2018. Abiy Ahmed was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019 for forging peace with Ethiopia's neighbor Eritrea. But just a year later, his government was collaborating with Eritrean troops to conduct a military operation in Tigray that has developed into a war that has killed tens of thousands of civilians and left millions of people in famine conditions with the federal government accused of blocking aid efforts. The government alleges that Tigrayan forces fired the first shots, and both warring parties have allegedly carried out extreme acts of violence and used information to support their aims. With its huge importance in the Horn of Africa, the war in Ethiopia threatens the stability of the whole region, and as with most wars, at the end of the day, it's regular people who have paid a massive price. 
We've posted a link to a New York Times article. It gives a timeline and explanation of the conflict on our webpage for this episode. It's our March 2022 episode at peacetalksradio.com. Now today, we're not able to or trying to report on the arguments or actions of all factions in this civil war, but we are speaking with an activist from the decrying diaspora in the U.S. to illustrate an example of our topic on the show, how factions can and have used social media to spread inflammatory language and unverifiable information across platforms, often unchecked or monitored by platform content filters, and how that messaging can heighten conflict. Also to explore what might be done here or elsewhere to mitigate the sometimes brutal results of misinformation and disinformation. Jerusalem Germay is the Chief Communications Officer for Umna Tigray, a resource center that advocates for peace and economic development in the region. Germay's parents were both born and raised in Tigray and fled the country during the violent Derg regime, the military junta that ruled Ethiopia from 1974 to 1987 before the Tigrayans' dominance of Ethiopian government from about 1991 to about 2018. Here now, Danielle Price talking with Jerusalem Germay of Umna Tigray in February of 2022 to get her take then on conditions in Tigray and later on how their population has been trying to sort through examples of misinformation and inflamed rhetoric on social media platforms. Can you explain what is happening in Tigray right now and how this conflict started? Um, so I think many terms have been used to describe what's happening in Tigray, uh, from conflict to civil war, a genocidal war. And I think the more appropriate designation would be genocide or, or genocidal war waged on Tigray and its people. And we say that because by all definitions confined within the UN as to what constitutes a genocide has been done to the people of Tigray. Uh, particularly, this genocide has been hallmarked by mass killings we've seen in the tens of thousands, on conservative estimates say around 70,000, uh, rape and gang rape by some estimates into the tens of thousands, the weaponization of hunger impacting millions with 900,000 now living in famine, and wanton destruction of the region, particularly with hospitals and health centers. Um, are, are you Tigrayan yourself? I am. Uh, both parents. Okay. And um, were they both born in Tigray? Or? Yes, uh, both born and raised in Tigray, and both left uh, for Sudan around the time of the brutal military like derg regime a lot of what is happening to Tigray now is something like my parents witnessed and escaped so the hatred and the trauma is multi-general uh, multi-generational which is sad to see and, and you know with this generation we're hoping that we could put an end to it so this never happens again and what is the situation like in Tigray now are, are you able to communicate with people there uh no so uh, since November 4th, 2020, uh, Abiy Ahmed and, and the government Ethiopia um, set in motion a telecommunications blockout. And so restriction has largely uh, been implemented. And so in terms of phoning uh, or internet or anything like that, there's relatively no communication. I'm able to talk to some family members outside of the region, but even so, our conversations are pretty brief because a lot of them are fearful they are being tapped into. Um, so mm -hmm. they can't go into specifics. And then largely, 
I and, and some other Tigrayans, we hear about our family's deaths uh, as a result of this genocidal war, um, you know, subsequently, like weeks potentially after it happens. Um, so the communication still is very much restricted. It sounds incredibly difficult. It is. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly difficult. Um, I just learned uh, about a week or two ago that two of my family members, civilians, were killed uh, in an airstrike, a strategic airstrike um, targeting a, uh, a bus transporting people that were going to go back to from Afar to the regional capital of Ma'ala. Uh, they had no military ties, um, but this is just part of an ongoing strategy to terrorize the people of Tigray, both if, in the literal sense, like physically and, and mentally. Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, Thank you. But um, it's kind of hard to just think about direct family members or even if it's like second cousins or whatever have you, just because this is a shared experience by all Tigrayans, Tigrayans mm-hmm. in the region, in the country, neighboring Sudan, Kenya, and elsewhere in the diaspora. Um, when everybody is under attack, it, it almost feels selfish to just think about who you're directly impacted by, because we know that this is a threat to our collective existence. Mm, yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about the Tigray region? Yeah, I think for most people, when they think of Ethiopia, they think about it in a nationalist you know, kind of idea. Nobody particularly knows maybe like the language or the regions that make up uh, uh, the country. And uh, Tigray is the northernmost region. It, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's home, uh, even for the diaspora who who weren't born there, uh, but have been back. It very much feels home and natural for us. It has a population of around 7 million people. It's mostly relies on agriculture. Um, you'll see a lot of farmers. Um, and it's a deeply religious society. Um, Orthodox Christianity being the predominant uh, religion. And we also have um, Islam that's deep rooted in the country's history. So a lot of agriculture, a lot of farmers, uh, the kindest people you'll meet when you go over there. There's not a person who wouldn't extend uh, an offering or a helping hand. Uh, And it's a very proud culture I'm proud to be a part of. So um, can you tell me then what uh, Omna Tigray does and what the mission is? Omna Tigray was founded by global Tigray professionals, um, and then we have representation everywhere, whether it's in Ethiopia, um, mostly the U.S., Canada, uh, Europe, and Australia. And our aim is to bring an end to the genocidal war by advocating for it and calling for unrestricted humanitarian aid. And, and our mission is to fight injustices that Tigrayans face and really advocate for peace and the economic development for Tigray. And because of the telecommunications blackout, uh, what we are really trying to do is amplify amplify the voices of the Tigrayan people to make sure that they're heard while they're okay. intentionally trying to be silenced. Okay. And why does uh, Omni Tigray focus so much on disinformation? What role has uh, that played in the war? Uh, I think uh, one of the big reasons why we focus on disinformation is because of its impact on the people of Tigray. So at the beginning of the war and why we really started was because of the telecommunications blackout, we noticed that it was really only the federal government of Ethiopia that had a voice to speak on. And what we were hearing from them 
compared to um, Tigrayans that have fled to Sudan, which at the beginning was the only real um, voice of Tigrayans impacted by the war. Mm. Uh, there, we, we saw that there was like a huge stark contrast. And then um, with the disinformation, we really see that um, particularly it's um, an intent of the Ethiopian government to dismiss the crimes that have been committed against the people of Tigray. So it's really important that we combat that. um, So that way the gravity of what's happening in Tigray is understood and to make sure that um, the voices of Tigrayans don't get silenced. So the the disinformation um, that you're talking about here is coming from the Ethiopian government. Is it also from civilians? Yeah. um, One of the, and it, the Ethiopian government at one point even called on uh, the diaspora globally to uh, partake in this disinformation campaign. And it's essentially to silence um, all Tigrayan activists and voices in the diaspora who have been calling for uh, an end to the war, uh, particularly an end to to the suffering of the Tigrayan people. And uh, their kind of tactic is to silence or you know, just challenge everything. Um, but what we know is a, a lot of what they have done has been um, debunked and the government went so far as to create a fact-checking website, which is really pretty, yeah, pretty ridiculous or, or fact-checking like um, Twitter, which is pretty ridiculous considering like a state fact-checking itself and never finding any falsities is, is absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, but it shows you how absurd the country is to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it uh, is it strictly disinformation, or has there also been you know like calls for um, hate speech or violent rhetoric? Oh, absolutely. Um, hate speech has been a hallmark of pretty much every genocide, and it was started even before November fourth, twenty twenty, against the crying people. And we've seen several kind of words being used, um, and for many, they say it's it's strictly meant to. Uh, describe the regional government of Tigray, but we have seen it um, extended to the people of Tigray, to aid workers, and language like cancer, uh, junta, hyenas have Mm. even been spoken by uh, the prime minister himself. And we've seen that that level of hate speech and, and the type of hate speech um, has really resulted in real life, like violence and deaths. Uh, for example, the prime minister basically vilified NGOs and humanitarian humanitarian aid agencies, um, saying that they were helping and facilitating uh, war efforts. And we know directly after that happened, um, three members of MSF staff, one was a Spaniard, two being Tigrayan, were brutally massacred. And that's just one example. Mm-hmm. Do you see similarities between the disinformation influencing events in American politics and in Ethiopia, or is it something else that's going on? I think uh, disinformation in both cases has been a pretty good tool um, to silence people, and I think the the gravity of consequences in Ethiopia is much more severe when given the context of uh, what's the implications and, and the amount of impact of people, um, it, it's it's way more severe. But I guess the the intent um, of confusing the public and, and getting them on on one side is is both the same, but mm-hmm. um, it's definitely more severe on 
on the side of Ethiopia because we've seen so many people die for it. And and particularly for Tigrayans, it's not just in the region of Tigray itself. All Tigrayans have become essentially like enemy of the state where even playing um, music in Tigrinya, which is the, the language, the primary language of Tigray, um, you know, people have been arrested as a result of that. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about... Um... The problems, and these are massive problems that we're discussing. What can be done uh, specifically to combat the disinformation that's causing this violence? I think uh, a lot of the social media sites, like hosting these, uh, hosting posts where disinformation is is mostly being spread, has a lot more accountability um, than they're they're actually acting on. So, for example, if Facebook, uh, Twitter. Uh, we've even seen hate speech on on Clubhouse, hmm. um, Instagram. Uh, they know that hate speech is happening, um, and they've largely been inactive in making sure things are being removed. And I think what is harder is that a lot of the hate speech geared towards Tigrayans is in um, a different language, which makes it a bit harder to discern. But it shows, I mean, a a real commitment to making sure that these social media environments are safe spaces uh, would do wonders, especially especially when um, the disinformation is so obvious. So I think a a big uh, task, uh, primary objective, I guess, would be to set up teams to give this the attention it deserves because we've seen it here we've seen it with other countries as well how disinformation and hate speech going unchecked has has resulted in um, crimes against civilians and in Mm. real life violence yeah and so that's you know at the level of um what the platform should do or you know maybe even of um authorities but what about when we you know come to the personal level like what what can regular people do for regular people, um, don't underestimate, I would say, the value in reporting things that are disinformation or um, a hate speech, uh, just because now we've almost become numb to it because it's just been so prevalent that we're seeing it. But I think in any instant, instance, if you see something wrong related to Tigray or not, um, it should be reported because uh, social media environments can can be toxic. Um so it's better to do your part to remove some of that, particularly with disinformation. You know, the difference between disinformation and misinformation obviously is intent. So um, if people are intending particularly to uh, spread disinformation, uh, they should, as long as, as with their posts as well, um, should be removed from the platform. So I think also calling for accountability and for people that are known to consistently spread disinformation or hate speech, they should be held to account um, and they should be removed from this platform. Mm. And is that something that uh, Omna Tigray works on in terms of giving tools or, or supporting the process of, of reporting or figuring that out? So that's something we have done before where we're, we've called for cases of hate speech and disinformation. And then sometimes it's for documentation. Sometimes it's it's to request um, action be taken. But it's largely, I think, community efforts in um, reporting or like bringing to attention, calling out uh, some of these uh, repeat offenders. And we have seen some of the most egregious accounts uh, be temporarily suspended uh, for for some time being. So um, that's a positive step. 
So you are seeing actual um, results from from what might seem like kind of the small step of, of doing the reporting. I think in terms of scale, it's it's such a minuscule amount of people yeah. that we've we've seen in terms of results with hate speech uh, and the demonization of Tigrayans being so prevalent and it's being consistently spread. We know that it's influencing a lot of people and um, the risk to Tigrayans is just too great for the response to be so nonchalant. Um, we have seen so many people dying or being killed rather as a result of um, the disinformation or hate speech so we need to ensure that it's given the level of attention that it deserves yeah okay and i know um you mentioned that you know the the severity and the consequences are 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 different in terms of of this war as opposed to the type of disinformation that maybe is going on um, in american politics but do you think you know that we all have a responsibility to report disinformation wherever we see it. That's kind of no matter how small um, it might seem to report a post or to see some false information, that this is something that that everybody should really consider our own responsibility. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, obviously the, the amount of social media users is, uh, who knows the exact number, you know, we're like in excess of the hundreds of millions. And because of that, um, you have a lot of vulnerable groups. So this could be like maybe older generations who won't be able to discern um, disinformation. We have a, a younger demographic and it's people even around my age who aren't able to discern disinformation. Um, so when they're consistently seeing the same messaging, being spewed, uh, whether it's disinformation is not something that they're entirely aware of. They just know that this is something that's been repeated. So maybe it does have some credence to it. So no matter how big or small uh, the disinformation or hate speech, even if it doesn't impact you directly, everyone should make an effort to like report any instance of disinformation. That was Chief Communications Officer for Umna Tigray, Jerusalem Girmai. For more information about her and all of our guests, visit peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can hear Daniel's complete interviews. There you can sign up for our podcast or make a donation to keep this program going into the future. It's all at peacetalksradio.com. For Danielle Price, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.